Hello and welcome to the Patchwork Challenge podcast number three, the third one. Coming up in this month's episode we have uh, myself and James talking shortly about something that's fundamental to Patchwork Challenge and that's the scoring system, a couple of changes possibly happening there. And then after that we have uh, Dr Will Miles talking very wisely about birding and birding on Fair Isle in particular and a study that he's doing there on the Fair Isle data set that spans 60 years. So that should be very interesting indeed. So without further ado, let's go. Right, I am joined by James Spencer. Some of you may have heard of him. He has something to do with Patchwork Challenge. Um, and we have a couple of pretty major changes uh, in terms of scoring, in terms of Patchwork Challenge. We've been going for four years now, and I guess these are the two biggest changes that, well, one of them that we will be implementing and another one that we have implemented already. So in a little bit, James is going to be, ask me about his pet hate, which is uh, scoring points for subspecies. But first, I'm going to ask you a few questions, James. And this is about the revelation that Patchwork Challenge have decided to change scores for some species of birds. So tell me how that came about. Um, our feedback from the last podcast was mixed, really, because we, we talked about how our, our stance had been pretty um, standard all the way through. We sort of were waiting for a silver bullet to change scores because otherwise it would compromise the, um, the comparative scoring system. Uh, which people are fairly familiar with, I guess, now after a few years. And we were worried that dramatically altering scores or you know, doing it bit by bit would impact. But it was made clear to us that quite a lot of people felt that it was impacting already by not changing the scores. And that, you know, the say the decreased value of great white egrets or um, glossy ibis or the increased value of willow tits and turtle doves was perhaps um, not being highlighted through the scores and that they were being skewed in that way compared to when we started. So um, something Paul French mentioned on Facebook was if the B, uh, BBRC can change their criteria, why can't Patchwork Challenge? And that, that's a very valid point. Well, I, I guess we've, we've taken that on board and, and we, we've decided that we can change. But there is, there's a reason for it, and I think that what is a comparative score? What what are you comparing it to? It, originally, we decided that we were going to compare scores to a static baseline, which is you know an unchanging set of points for each species. The reality is that the bird populations do change, and it makes more sense for our comparative scores to reflect that than it does to reflect a static baseline. So a good example for me is... Um, if we were doing Patchwork Challenge back in 1955, um, somebody went out and found a collared dove, they'd be rightfully getting 15 points for that. Ten years down the line, that same person might have collared doves breeding on their patch. Should they still be getting 15 points for that? No, they shouldn't. You know, For the comparative score to truly reflect the value of the birds you've seen, it needs to change in reaction to the changing status of certain birds. So I guess that's what we're saying Patchwork Challenge are going to do. They will make some changes to the score sheet where there have been significant enough changes to the populations of birds to merit that. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think I think both populations and occurrence, because we're looking at all the species. We're not just looking at uh, the common species or those that are becoming more common. We're also looking at um, those more esoteric species uh, such as you know your Chinese uh, buntings that, that aren't occurring quite so often, and you know whilst we're not going to do a, a huge raft of changes that are going to alter people's scores, you know dramatically, we are going to consider um, a number of things, and then we're going to sit down at the end of May, and we're going to try and get as many of us together as we can, and we, we're going to go through these fairly systematically and have effectively an AGM uh, uh, with the admins present to try and develop a way forward, develop a, a more appropriate scoring system that hopefully will last the next five years. So there'll be there'll be like a rolling suite of changes. So maybe every four or five years you'll reassess. Crikey, glossy ibises are breeding everywhere now. They're only worth two points, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Okay, I mean, so 
Uh, we've mentioned a few species already, and, and you've mentioned that we don't know exactly what changes are going to be made. But give us a few, uh, give us a sneaky peek of what you think will be changing. We've 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 done a little a little bit of a straw poll in house, and I've got I think it's eight or nine species here, which there is some consensus. And um, so for British breeders that are on the decline, we've got a few, you know, passerine breeders. We've got corn bunting, uh, willow tit, um, turtle dove, you know, that we think should perhaps. Uh, be more than the one point that they're currently getting. So we, we've got those sort of universally bumped up to two points, although for turtle dove, I'm sure, in five years' time, that could well be three. For other species such as uh, um, citrine wag, uh, which, you know, it's, it's a more commonly occurring scarce migrant these days rather than uh, the vagrant it was in the past, you know, that's, that's going to slip to a three-pointer from four points. Uh, We've already mentioned great white egret, which, you know, it's going for a colonisation event. So that's going from a, a three-point scarce bird to a, a two-point local bird. You know, it's, it's a, it winters widely. And there's a, there's a few others like that, crane. And then we've got um, aquatic warbler, which is now not the passage migrant that it once was, really. So um, that's kind of where we're at in terms of agreement at the moment. There's other, other stuff on the table, which we'll no doubt talk about things like little egret and maybe upgrading the phalaropes. But we, sh we shall see uh, when we get to the discussion, really. Just to clarify, then everything you've um, you've mentioned there, that at least that we have some agreement on, is, is stuff where there's been pretty obvious changes in status, be they breeders or, or, or the regularity of occurrence as vagrants. So I guess what I'm saying is that there will be, there will be no two points for red-crested potchard. There will be no two points for Bill Aspin's red crested potchard in this lifetime or the next. Or so, any other lifetime or any other universe. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this is the thing. It's, it's still not going to reflect regional variations. No. You know, I mean, we're talking about perhaps bringing white-tailed eagle down from a three-pointer to a two-pointer. But that's not to reflect regional variation. That's to reflect increased range and occurrence, mm -hmm. you know. Um, which wasn't the case five years ago, ten years ago, or what you know, whenever these sort of values were first considered. Mm. So, okay, before we move on to subspecies, try and predict a long-term change. I don't want anything that you think might uh, change it during this suite of changes, but something that might change five or ten years down the line. You got anything? Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I think at the moment something like uh, say Blythe Reed Warbler. Oh, that was my one. Uh, that was my one. Oh, oh, what, what, are the, what are the odds? What are the odds? Oh, well, anyway, let's just <laughs> let's just stick with that one. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that it's expanding in range in Scandinavia. You know, its occurrence is increasing, but um, we've we've got it currently as a four point. It's a, it's a rare bird, but it's it's only on the cusp of being a rare bird. Mm -hmm. But it's the sort of thing that could start. You know, it's the sort of thing that could perhaps start breeding in northeast Scotland or. Uh, or you know having occasional spring singing birds and you know increasing in terms of becoming a passage migrant. So it could um, it could go from a four to a three to a two. Well, one day I, th I think we're probably talking beyond Patrick Jones's lifespan there. But uh, crikey, I'm, that's ambitious. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think we'll last that long. Uh, <laughs> but. I, yeah, it's it's something that's obviously increased, and well, there's been an increase in occurrence, but also there's been that um, increase in knowledge of how to identify it, mm -hmm. and those two things go hand in hand for a bird that's really changed its status. But is it is it ready to become just a three pointer at the moment? I mean, for me, not so much, but obviously, your opinion is slightly different. Yeah, well, you know, I just figured that it's not a BB anymore, and that's the same reason why things like. Sitwag of uh, being dropped, so that, yeah. that was that was my take on it. So you've you've stolen my idea there for Blythe Reed Warbler. So I'll have to think of something. Oh, I'm sorry. Off the off the cuff now, I'm going to say <laughs> that Trumpeter Finch will go from a mega to a four pointer because of yeah. global warming. <laughs> well, that seems like a fairly sensible. You know, it's colonising southeast Spain. More of a curd over the last ten years than in the previous twenty. So. You know, when uh, when parts of Hampshire are a desert, then uh, yeah. <laughs> they'll be perfect habitat for trumpeter finch. So, uh, oh. 
that's one to look out for in the future. Anyway, well, let's let's move on from this. Uh, now you've got to ask me some tricky questions. So we're looking at subspecies and uh, which subspecies score points, why they score points, and uh, whose fault it is they score points. <laughs> <laughs> whose fault it is? Well, I'm not I, going to tell you whose fault it is because originally it was an idea that was proposed to Ryan and I by someone taking part in a competition. So I'm, you know, I'm not a grass. I'm not dobbing anyone in. No, um, no, that's fair enough. But Ryan and I agreed that it was a good idea, and primarily because uh, it allows you to reward some good finds. So some of the examples that were given to us were things like black-headed wagtail, black brant, dark-breasted barn owl, stuff like that. So, you know, these are pretty... They're things with pretty clear taxonomy, they're pretty easy to identify, and they're pretty rare. And we figured that Patriot Challenge was about encouraging people to do their own thing, to find their own birds, and not giving people points for subspecies didn't really seem to fit in with that at all. I was I was totally with you at the time because I had a, a Cumberland's girl sat on my patch. This is early 2013, and I'd relocated it after the prerequisite gap. And I was very happy when you announced that I was going to get a few extra points. But my my take on subspecies was there was there was a people give value to these things related to their speciesness or their subspeciesness or their rarity. Hang on, James. Yeah, you just said speciesness. Yes, I know. All right, carry on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was kind of um, almost the diagnosability mm-hmm. and, and how well regarded they were. But some of the uh, decisions with regard to species and subspecies are pretty, pretty political with regard to funding and uh, occurrence. And you look at things like um, green and white-fronted goose, which you know is a Schedule 1 but European white-fronted goose isn't, mm-hmm. and yet they're the same species. And that, that actually gives them a different status. And yet you look at, uh, say, 20 years ago, Iberian chiffchaff was just lobbed in with chiffchaff, and it's just the same bird with a different song. So I think that reflecting diversity is probably better than uh, trying to lump everything into nice little neat bundles. And mm-hmm. the fact that you guys decided to reward points for... Um, well, for Black Brand, um, for Dark Breasted Barno and the, the like, was was a good thing because it just encouraged people to get out. But there were there, there were some odd decisions initially, and um, you know we, the the scoring system's quite uh, convoluted for the subspecies. Mm-hmm. It's different to the main scoring system. Can you highlight why that was and uh, which species caused you or subspecies caused you particular headaches? Uh, I can't really tell you why, other than we just dropped the ball with a couple. I think the the two obvious ones are the ones that we awarded two points for. So Siberian Chiffchaff and Crakey, I can't even remember myself now. Any non-yellow, yellow wagtail, I guess, is, is one way of putting it. Yeah. And the reason that um, we went for that was that we, we figured that they were good finds, you know, yeah. and people should be rewarded for them, but they're not, they weren't as rare as most of the other three-pointers. Um, no. With hindsight, are they any commoner than yellow bog warbler? No, they're not. So we could really quite comfortably have given them three points each and saved ourselves a bit of a headache with that. Yeah. There wasn't a particular species that we had a particular hard time with. It was just... We needed to draw a line. So all of the... You know, we put this out on Facebook and Twitter the other day, and I was I had a look through all of the responses we got. And when you sort of look at them a bit more broadly, basically what all of them are saying is that a line needs to be drawn somewhere. And what people's problem with that, with our decision was that they didn't agree with where we'd drawn the line. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's something that's always going to be a problem because like taxonomists can't agree where to draw the line. So. Absolutely. So why? So what we tried to do was we, we tried to choose a bunch of species that were distinctive enough, rare enough, and were considered good finds. And we we, yeah. we awarded some points for those species. And what we wanted to avoid doing was adding a whole bunch of complexity and giving spe- uh, points for subspecies like white wagtail, uh, littoralis rock pipits, 
And then all sorts of bobbins like tundra ring plover and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, so, I, I, so some I people have know. so some people have complained that some subspecies will get points and some don't, and that's a pretty valid complaint. But essentially, what they're saying is that they would have drawn the line in a different place from us, and that's fair well, enough. That's fair enough. But I don't think we're going to change where we draw the line. No, no, and I, I think looking at Twitter. And we ran a quick Twitter poll uh, that ran for a couple hours the other night. And it pretty much came back 50-50 as to who wanted subspecies and who didn't. Mm -hmm. But the responses were generally um, equally split in terms of uh, trying to inform us whether we were too liberal or too conservative with the award of points. Mm -hmm. So it it seemed to suggest that we were hitting the middle ground. Um, I mean, did, did... did you see any reasons suggested why we shouldn't award points for subspecies or why we should award points for subspecies? Well, that's another thing I was thinking about today. My, I was really surprised by the results of the Twitter poll because my impression was that everyone hated subspecies. And what was interesting to me was that 50% of people responded positively in terms of subspecies. But when people actually sort of voiced their opinions... So actually wrote something down rather than just respond to the poll. All of that, or, or 99% of that, was has always been negative. So I was very yeah. pleasantly surprised that not as many people hated this as I thought they did. And I thought about the reason. I tried to think for, about the reasons why people wouldn't like subspecies, or excuse me, why people wouldn't like points being scored for subspecies in Patchwork Challenge. And I couldn't actually think of any. Um, and I, apart from that they just don't value them as much as they would value something that at the moment is perceived to be a full species. And that's, that's all it's about. It's about, it's about for, for me, it's about the perception. Because taxonomy isn't stable. Taxonomy is always in flux, and some things will be, become species in future, and some things will be, will be lumped. So yeah. all, all we're doing is drawing a line in a slightly different place and saying that the birds on one side of this line score points and the birds on the other don't. And I don't think that the fact that some geneticist in Sweden thinks that uh, thinks that, <laughs> that something is a species or not doesn't really affect what I think has value on my patch. Does that make that, sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, the value of uh, birds on your patch... Does not is not affected by taxonomic take on them. You know, hooded crow and carrion crow are two different things. You get them both on patch. You want points for both of them, and it's the same for lots of things. One of the problems that I think we do have is for the the stranger subspecies, the less well recognised subspecies. Um, things like uh, funny dunlin um, mm. or odd ring oozles with lots of white on them, and. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it, it's it's how we deal with those because some of them, you know, if something is a react uh, subspecies, then that obviously holds an enormous amount of value. Mm-hmm. But what's what's real and what's just natural variation and what's where where do we draw the line there? How do we how do we deal with those subspecies and when do we just laugh and say no, that, that's a load of rubbish? We do that quite a lot. Um, it, what is worth pointing out that when we do make these decisions. They are by and large not a reflection on any sort of taxonomic status or any, you know, we're not making a stance on the bird's taxonomy. No. We're making a stance on the identifiability, that's the word I just made up, the <laughs> identifiability and the rarity of that bird. That's what it's all about, really. We, why, we, why we don't include all subspecies is because there's so many things that are so subtle I mean, how many subspecies of reed bunting and stone chat are there? You know, I didn't want to get into a situation where after every fall on the East Coast, everyone starts claiming points for Clarky song thrushes and for Rebecula robins and for Recredula willow warblers and all that, just because they know they've come from somewhere else. You know, that's that's a bit dodgy. That I wanted to have things where reasonably clear identification criteria had been laid out and these things were doable in the field. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense to me. Um, the thing with stuff like Scandi subspecies, or, or you know, they relate to clinal variation, whereas 
a lot of these ones that we've actually addressed don't relate to clinal variation. They relate to other differences. And it's a bit more explicit. Mm. And it's mm. a bit more diagnosable. Not in every case. I mean, Cumline skull is a, is a good example of where we've just taken an identifiable form and, and given some points for it. You know, the Cumline skull is what? A part of a hybrid swarm between two species that may not be species. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, like I said, it's not a it's not a a statement with regards to the taxonomy of the bird. It's just that these things come over here. We know how to identify them, and they're rare. So take some points for it. Essentially, yeah, it's from Ellesmere Island. It's not from down the road. Exactly, so. exactly. It might be worth touching on just a few of the species that, had we been in doing this in the past, we wouldn't be getting points for. So, I mean, I wrote a list earlier on Caspian gull, yellow leg gull, Balearic shearwater, water pipit, Sykes warbler. You know, these are things that we just have absolutely no doubt about their taxonomy. And this is another advantage that having subspecies in the scoring system gives us is that it keeps us, it's like a buffer almost for taxonomic, when taxonomic changes are made, we're now buffered against that in terms of our scoring system, because the ones that are most likely to be made are already included in our scoring system. So to me, that's another real advantage of having this this overlap into subspeciation, basically. That's, that's definitely true. You know, it gives us that future-proofing that it was always visible for the gulls, you know, from a long time before they were split. It's, you know, something like black brand is probably going to get split down the line. So why not why not be ready for that? Yeah. And why not also, you know, the flip side is red poles, at least by some authorities, will be lumped in the future probably. Are Patchwork Challenge gonna change the scores that they give up for red poles? Probably not, because they they'll still remain identifiable forms. Well, I mean we've been quite conservative with the northwestern forms anyway, mm-hmm. um because of the murkiness um around the Icelandic birds and the greater red pole and stuff like that. So we, we've just always sort of stuck with the, well, I can't remember if it's three or four, you know, I don't know if we, we give extra for Horniman's red pole, but you know, we, we've been going down the diagnostic route rather mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. Uh, trying to fit everything into nice little boxes and whether that changes, a lesser red pole is always going to be a different thing to a mealy red pole. There might be overlap. You might disagree. But a lesser red pole's brown, a mealy red pole's grey, an arctic red pole's white. But I disagree, I disagree with that. But I take your point. <laughs> no, no, no. But, you know, obviously, it's 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 a it's a shade of grey argument, and I understand that. But you know, they're always going to be those forms knocking about, whether they're whether they're considered subspecies, uh, Klein, or um, full species, regardless. Mm. So I guess what this means is that we're not despite the fact that half of the people who take part in Patchwork Challenge are against scoring points for subspecies, we're not going to change that, um, with apologies to people who feel pretty strongly about it. Uh, we're not going to change it. But for me, it's pretty gratifying that there are half of the people who take part in Patchwork Challenge who actually think it's a good idea. And hopefully, with this discussion, we've managed to, to swing that in our favour a little bit more. Do you think so, or do you think we've just bored people? Well, I, I think there's definitely an element of boredom. You know, we're both tired. You're not so well. But um, <laughs> I, I, I think uh, reflecting on the poll and the responses, I, I don't think it's 50% negative, 50% positive. I think that actually what we've got is a spectrum of responses to it. Mm. And, you know, we hear from the most polarised ends, but that people see it in different ways and changing it now would be far more um, impactful than changing willow tip to two points. Yeah. And that is fundamentally a reason for not changing it. So I guess in summary, this is something that we'll probably keep looking at, like the sort of the rolling suite of appraisals for species where where, uh, status has changed. It's something that can be reviewed in future as well, but I think it's safe to say that for the moment, we're not going to make any changes to the scoring of subspecies. Is that fair enough? I think that's completely fair. I think that's exactly what the situation is.
Okay, right, well, uh, let's move on to something that isn't just me and you talking. It'll be me and someone else talking, but let's move on to it anyway. Thanks very much, James. <laughs> Cheers, Mark. Bye. <laughs> okay, before we move on to listening to Will Miles, uh, you may notice that the uh, this podcast is slightly pared down compared to the previous ones. It's a bit shorter. And also we have no ones to watch for April because it's the end of April, despite the snow outside. So instead of that, I will very briefly do ones to watch for May and I will say Redback Shrike. There you go. Right, well, I'm joined by Will Miles, and in a first for the Patchwork Challenge podcast, I'm actually sitting face-to-face with Will. We were going to do this over a whiskey the other night, but we just ended up yapping. So we're doing it over a cup of tea and a Tunnock's tea cake or two. So if you hear a bit of this or a bit of that, then that's just us doing Sunday stuff. How are you doing, Will? I'm good, yeah. Good. <laughs> cup of tea and Tunnock's tea cake sounds good to me. Well, let's... Uh, Let's keep it civilised, you know? That's <laughs> sweet. <laughs> okay, we're here to talk about Fair Isle. You obviously spent a lot of time on Fair Isle. You've spent a lot of time on islands, basically. You've lived on St Kilda for a bit before yeah, then. Yeah. How long were you on Fair Isle for? So, I, I lived on Fair Isle for four years, but it was split between uh, one year in 2006 and then the three years from 2011 to 2013. And you were assistant warden? Yeah, yeah. So, I started with Dell and Holly in 2006 as assistant warden and then... Came back working uh, with David Parnaby and Susanna Parnaby, uh, and I guess a, a sort of slightly different role in that I was in charge of the ringing and uh, worked with David doing a lot of the seabird work and of course uh, the centres as well, the daily migrant centres. Mm. Um, so yeah, a lot of good things. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like a decent job. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of fun and a lot of good information kind of coming from all the recording and yeah, just. A huge diversity of different things that yeah. go on on the island every day that you're involved in as part of the wardening team, kind of visitor work. Uh, like I say, a lot of the a lot of the uh, data recording, just helping people to experience the island and and enjoy birds and other wildlife as mm. well. Well, we'll get onto all the uh, all this data uh, later on because uh, obviously that's something that we're going to talk about. But because this is a Patrick Challenge podcast, we've never had anyone enter Patrick Challenge from Farewell. Well, I've, I've, that about. I've, I've heard the site's a wee bit big, isn't it? I, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, I as as you know, I bird my patch most days, and I should imagine that living and working on Fair Isle, whether you sort of term it patch birding or not, there's a lot of similarities there. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of the day-to-day kind of routine of the wardens, the island is split into three areas that are surveyed every day so one warden takes each each third mm-hmm. and you you rotate um so you go through north census southeast census southwest census so you you're effectively in a, a slightly different patch each day and also it's kind of worth remembering that there's a huge number of visitors and also quite a few of the island residents are into birding as well so so you never really have it to yourself which is which is great because other people find a lot of good birds and <laughs> I'm really grateful for that I think all the wardens have seen a, a huge number of rare birds that have been found by other people yeah. despite I mean, the fact that as a warden you do find a good number of rare birds yourself as you know I, I'm perfectly happy to have other birders bird on my patch <laughs> <laughs> but it must be it must be great to have I guess you might call it backup and just, just yeah, to know yeah. that, there's, yeah. that f- fewer birds are going to slip through the net yeah, I mean, I think because the island is so kind of relatively small in terms of the number of people birding it on on a peak day in spring and autumn, it is it does get a huge uh, range of coverage, and of mm. course, all of those uh, records are kind of brought together in this this kind of great event of all bird observatories. I think that the, the daily log. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so on Vera, kind of the gathering is normally about nine thirty, nine ish, and there's kind of tea and cocoa and. Tea and cocoa. Tea, tea, well, tea and cocoa, yeah. And, and cakes as well. And uh, probably more importantly, a few beers for yeah. the bar as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's 
like it's it's just a really good experience yeah. for all concerned really it sounds it sounds great do you think that um the visitors bird the island uh, differently to you i guess you know all the sort of hidden gems and i guess the majority of the visitors maybe stick to the roads a bit and have a there's a fixation with gardens i i found it like when i first started visiting sandy i found it really difficult not to have my sort of habitat head on looking for migrants you know warblers like trees and all that sort of stuff you you soon get out of it after a while but i guess if you certainly for the first time visit a somewhere like farewell there might be the the tendency to ignore the bits in between the more obvious spots and that's probably a mistake isn't it I i think it can be i think uh the way that the way that you're taught to bird the island when you first go there as an assistant warden, I remember when, for example, I kind of first arrived sort of as a rookie in two thousand six and and was working and being shown the ropes by Derek, um, who was who was brilliant. But I, I just remember this. I think I was slightly in awe of both the island and his personal mm-hmm. kind of birding yeah. record. Um, but yeah, walking around with him, it was just absolutely brilliant because he, sh- he showed me the particular route that you take for each census patch. And then as we went round, he kind of gave this sort of running dialogue of, of really amazing birds that have been found in different places. And I think by the end of the first day, I was just sort of on the ceiling, really. It's just so, <laughs> so looking forward to getting into it. And it is a slightly different kind of kettle of fish, I suppose, to birding as a visitor there in that you are trying to record every single thing that you see in terms of migrants and also occasionally some of the residents um, and so you are trying to pick everything up from every different habitat if if you go there as a visitor most visitors don't kind of count every single rock pipit or twite or meadow pipit or skylark um, as the wardens do and I guess they are drawn to areas of habitat that are maybe kind of more well that perhaps have a proven track record hmm. and are not so challenging as some of the other areas so one of the most challenging habitats on Vera for birding is the cliffs which actually represents a huge area in a kind of vertical plane so one of the things that I remember Derek kind of showing me was as we went round the north and west of the island where the cliffs are highest he'd, he'd point out all the different kind of vantage points where you could look back and you could see like a huge area of cliff Mm-hmm. and you just kind of sit for a moment and, and scan across and count everything and it's amazing what turns up on those cliffs I mean the, the track record for scarcities and rarities on the cliffs for Fairrod is second to none and oh, there's a, a number of kind of standout rarities Blackburnian Warbler, Magnolia Warbler that have been found on cliffs um, mm-hmm. and like I say they are a really challenging kind of uh, habitat to bird because quite often <laughs> the birds seem really small and, and they're kind of in and out of crevices, going around kind of rock corners. And yeah, I think I can understand why. And certainly when I first visited Farewell as a visitor in 2005, I was kind of sticking to the gardens and to the grown up vegetation. And I don't think I've birded the cliffs of mm. much at all. So uh, it, it is a slightly different experience as a warden there um, for a number of reasons, really. Do you think that now you're back on the mainland I, I think that Torrey and uh, Farewell are probably quite similar in many ways uh, remote <laughs> they have a certain number of people who never leave them and uh, there's, a, there's an excellent pub but um, <laughs> do you think that do you think you've had to sort of unlearn your, your Farewell practices I don't know I think I think it helps to have birded a lot of different places perhaps before going to Farewell hmm. and therefore you sort of work kind of your expectation for finding rarities kind of works up towards Farrell in that when you're on Farrell you kind of know the track record if you've been there at a good time of year at all before as a guest or if the days are good as soon as you get there you you are aware that the birding is of a different realm to Mm. probably anything else in Britain Um, it probably sounds really arrogant but I think it's true the the finding of scarcities and, and rarities as well is just uh, in a different category to to most other sites. Um, so how does so that affect? Obviously, you come up to Girdleness now, and you still does that does that affect your expectations, or, or you know how do you sort of adapt to what I might perceive as the sort of the re- relative poverty of, of mainland birding again? Well, I think I think it just depends what you want from your birding, and and 
course, if you're building different sites, maybe you kind of adjust that a little bit. So with, with Fair Isle, or as one of, one of the wardening team, you're, you're counting all the time and you are hoping to encounter scarcities and rarities. And, and by and large, most people do on quite a regular basis. Um, and so I suppose that those, those kind of aspects become your focus. But then if you come to a different site on the mainland, it, your kind of focus changes and perhaps you've got a little bit more time to just take your time and enjoy mm. birds. Uh, the common species, if you encounter scarcities, that's good too. But I think, yeah, moving off Feral, which at some point most kind of wardens, assistant wardens have to do, it always kind of changes your outlook on birding and maybe you become a little bit more sort of focused on particular things you enjoy that are aside from scarcities and rarities so certainly moving to northeast scotland and being in kind of close proximity to the cairngorms national park and also all the little harbors of kind of northeast yeah, yeah. and, and girdleness as well just you're seeing a range of different things i mean girdleness in july and august sea watching is arguably far better than on Feral, so that's something I've really, really enjoyed. It is, it is far better. There's no argument. Yeah. There. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, I've kind of the thought of kind of going out and before work, you just have a half an hour, an hour, just watching kind of on a good day passage of Manx shearwaters, maybe a range of skewers, lots and lots of city shearwaters. That is quite an unusual yeah. day on Feral, so that's just something different that is available in northeast Scotland that it just really enjoyable so yeah it, it just sort of changes no matter where you are your kind of outlook and your focus on the different things you enjoy I, I guess do change I think that patch birders that must be reassuring for patch birders knowing that someone who's you know come from this place where you're bumping into two BBs a week and well that's a very good week <laughs> yeah but I mean it's never happened to me at Girdle Nest <laughs> it does happen but, <laughs> but for, you know I think it's Obviously, the scope for finding rares in, in Fair Isle is, is huge, but the, the sort of like you say, the diversity of birding is is pretty is is more restricted. You know, you're not going to go sift through big flocks of waders and wildfowl. The sea watching might not be so good. You know, you can't you can't do anything in a woodland. So yeah, this, this it's interesting to see that. You, I, I guess, you, like you say, you change your expectations, but there's still plenty to enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, this this things on the mainland and things everywhere that. You, you can't access on Fairwell. Like mm. Fairwell does have its own sort of uh, way of birding, uh, and and I guess the the different diversity of birds that occurs there is kind of quite unique. In that, as you say, it's compared to many other places, quite sort of scarce and rarity heavy. Um, but you can't go and see ptarmigan on Fairwell or something like that. Mm. You can't pretty unusual to see something like a Dartford warbler on Fair Isle um, and so yeah kind of other places in the rest of the country are really really good too but I mean that said I would say that of all the places in the UK that I've ever birded Fair Isle has kind of given me most particularly as a, a member of staff of the Bird Observatory but then also just as a visitor it it's amazing when you leave kind of you get on the plane and if you've had kind of a few years or even just a week on the island, I think your your main feeling is just how much such a small place has given you the the, the range of experiences, the range of goodwill as well, because the, the community is so friendly and so welcoming. Um, and as a sort of member of the bird observatory staff I mean some of my favorite memories from the island are, are not related to birds at all it's completely related to the island community and hmm. kind of people you share time with there um, see I remember you telling me about a time when you had a marsh warbler and someone asked you in for tea and cake and you went for the tea and cake option but I like you know I like the idea that, <laughs> that was after I left as a member of staff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I can cut that out if you want <laughs> it's, it's all good uh, so yeah just to elaborate on that particular case <laughs> so it's, it was a, quite a long time after I left and uh, I remember going back as a visitor and <laughs> calling by one of the gardens and there's an acro in there 
that was behaving very stonkily. <laughs> we waited for an hour and saw it a few times and the plumage and uh, the call was sounding good for marsh warbler. It, it probably was a marsh warbler, but it just wasn't showing. And during kind of the course of the, uh, the time we spent watching, the, the kind of uh, owner of the croft came out, who, who's a birder, and he said, oh, did you want to come in for tea and cake? And I'm afraid, yeah, I did take the tea and cake option after a, after an hour of not seeing this bird very well. Well, this tea, is, <laughs> tea is important. I mean, I guess that's made abundantly clear by the fact that I poured myself a cup of tea when you were answering that question. And nobody heard me do it, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's let's get back to the uh, the work of the observatory yeah. a little bit. And I guess this is what we're really here to talk about now. So... Tell us about this this project you're working on at the moment. So, well, first of all, the, the, the work of the, the observatory is extremely diverse. So you, you kind of got to remember there are two kind of strands to it. So there's the bird observatory, uh, which, of course, is related to all the ornithology work. And then integrated with the bird observatory is the guest house for mm-hmm. really anybody who wants to come and experience the island. Um, but what I'm working on at the moment, uh, I'm course live in off Fair Island yet still employed by the observatory and the work is to carry out a scientific analysis of the 60 plus year data set of migrate records that the bird observatory has collected on a very very kind of systematic daily basis so it's really an amazing data set very very high resolution in the fact that it's covered so many different years it covers both spring and autumn migration and it encompasses daily records, which mm. is very, very kind of good if you want to get a clear signal of how the natural world is changing. Yeah. So it, this census, this sort of three zones covered once in the morning, yeah. once in the afternoon, That's that's been happening for 60 years daily. But, yeah, more than that. And I guess part so, of, a big part of your job is also, well, it's been to collate that information, but also you've had to digitise some of it as well, or somebody has had to digitise it. Which yeah, must yeah, have been so, a massive job. So it was it was a huge task. Um, but yeah, come 2014, we were in this uh, very good position where all of the data and all of the log records, because you, you have to remember that it's, just, it's not just the numbers that encompass that data set. There's a huge amount of notation from all the wardens about what's been going on on the island. So all of that was in digital format. And we were in this position where it had never been really sort of scientifically analysed before um, in terms of trying to figure out what the overarching patterns might be in, in migration. Um, so that, you know, 2014 saw the, the kind of creation of the, the Feral Migration Project, which was, as I say, this sort of scientific analysis. So, well, to try and get the data set to kind of reveal some of its secrets, really. Mm. And, and has it has it done that? It has so far, yeah. So <laughs> it's it's step by step. Mm-hmm. So one of the most difficult parts of it has been actually deciding where you start. Yeah. Because you've got a data set comprising nine million records, well over nine million, and nearly four hundred species, and that's at a daily basis. So there's a huge number of different questions you can ask of that data set and there's a huge number of different things that potentially it can, can show you about what's been going on in the way of changes in in the timing of birds and changes in abundance over the years. So the first thing we decided to look at was, was timing um, and the first study has been on the, the, the timing, the phenology of uh, long distance migrants. So a suite of species that every year do the crossing of the Sahara. Mm and every year turn up on in reasonably good numbers on Fair Isle. And yeah, we've been looking at the, the changing patterns that have cool. come up. So my, my expectation of that would be that with global warming, perhaps migrants will start arriving earlier. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's obviously a pretty basic sort of assumption. Yeah, so uh, that is one of the findings from the study we've done. But uh, to everybody's surprise, I think, we also found that some of the migrant timings are getting later so there has been previous research carried out on the the first arrival date of spring migrants and by and large you're absolutely right that has shown that in association with global warming the timing of these migrants are getting earlier and earlier Um, one of the advantages we had was that because we had data covering the whole spring and autumn period we were able to look at 
the whole migration distribution, not just the first arrival date. So we, for each of our study species, we looked at kind of patterns across that whole distribution. And we found that over the years, for a lot of species, the distribution was expanding. So by and large, the, the, the dates that the birds arrived initially was getting earlier, but then the period that they occurred on Farrell was, was getting longer and longer. So, I mean, that could happen for a diversity of different reasons. For example, maybe there's, there's weaker selection on the migration timing of birds. So maybe in the past, they, there was a selection for them to migrate within a very kind of narrow window, mm -hmm. whereas now the selection is weaker and they can afford to migrate across a broader time front. Um, or it could be, for example, due to the, the suite of migrants on Farrell incorporating a diversity of different populations so even yeah. among one species you could have a variety of different say subspecies or subpopulations and perhaps the effects of global warming are affecting each of those subpopulations differently um, so it could just be an artifact of different subpopulations doing different things um, we perhaps need kind of greater detail from maybe DNA studies to mm. get to the bottom of that but that's one explanation among many so for the what, what might the implications of, of this new knowledge be for the patch bird? I guess my take on it is that perhaps we don't we don't know as much as we thought we did or what we think we know is changing. So I, I know that you've been studying not only the arrivals of migrants in the spring but also you've looked at some autumn migrants such as yellow-browed warbler, something that's obviously come a fair distance and you have You've made similar discoveries with that, haven't you? Basically, not only are yellow-browed warblers becoming commoner, but the sort of the window of their arrival is is becoming wider and wider, isn't it? So birds are arriving both earlier and later. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, yellow-browed is yellow-browed probably the best example <laughs> to talk about because there has been this startling increase in numbers. I mean, last year on Vera, I think. Uh, the total number of bird days of yellow-browed warbler. First of all, it was a record, but it was a record by a substantial margin, margin mm -hmm. a sort of several, a several hundred more than had ever occurred. And yeah, the the timing. So they they seem to arrive earlier, and they seem to kind of disappear a bit later. Um, but that, there's a, a number of different species for which the same kind of patterns have occurred. So, for example, something like lesser whitethroat. Over the years, there's been a strong pattern of the the final departure getting later and later and later so mm -hmm. birds are seen kind of later and later through the autumn um, and it's, it's very striking it's I mean since say the 1950s birds have kind of got later and later by a matter of weeks so it's not a small margin it's, mm -hmm. it's really considerable changes we're talking about so I think in terms of patch birding we are in a state of change and perhaps species where patch birders could could be pretty sure that they were going to see them maybe in a certain week of the year or a certain kind of very narrow time period of the year uh, they they'll see species kind of turning up maybe odd times or mm. or for common things kind of that as you say that window of occurrence getting getting broader so i remember when i was a kid growing up autumn was september and october but what you're telling me now that autumn is august september october and november <laughs> maybe even december before <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah i'm sure my other half would be thrilled to hear that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not going to go down well with some folk <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're still working on this obviously you've been <laughs> yeah. at it for what's it, 18 months now yeah like yeah that? yeah and you've you, well you don't know how long it's going to take do you well there's there's so many different opportunities so many different things we could look at that in some ways the kind of world is our oyster but our, our, our choices so far I mean, first of all, the beginning of the project was uh, for several months we were just doing a viability study to see whether the, the data set was as robust as we hoped and whether we would be able to do the kind of analysis we'd hoped with it. And, and the answer to that was a resounding yes. It was extremely robust data and we were very pleased about that. Um, so we started by doing, as I say, this study looking at changes in timing and we're now into a study looking at changes in abundance and our kind of goal is really to try to discover how overarching patterns of abundance have kind of changed over the years but then also to look at uh, the assemblage of migrants as a whole 
and try to discover how the diversity of that assemblage so by assemblage i mean just any grouping of, mm. of migrants so our our kind of assemblage we're looking at for for these early analyses is is the warblers so taxonomic splits aside like, there's been about 37 to 40 species mm. of warbler occur on the island and at the moment we're trying to figure out how to measure changes in diversity of that group across the 60-year period as well as looking at the kind of individual species levels so for example how the how the abundance of yellow-browed or the abundance of barred warbler has changed mm-hmm. at an individual level so, it sounds yeah, it's really exciting it sounds absolutely fascinating <laughs> yeah. am i going to be able to read about it in a book <laughs> i hope so yeah i really hope so so our approach has been uh to well of course carry out the analyses and then uh we're writing it up as as scientific papers but then it's very important so we've uh we've been trying to kind of write up uh in an accessible way as well so as much as i much of the information will come out in science journals we're hoping to kind of either put it into a book or mm-hmm. maybe kind of slightly more accessible articles yeah um, yeah for example maybe in british birds or scottish birds so yeah i think i think that information is going to be available to everybody and well the hope is that maybe we'll get on to do a, a, a next edition of the birds of farewell well that would be that would be absolutely brilliant especially for me because you know, we all have our islands of choice, and, and neither of mine are farewell. So it might be the closest <laughs> I get is to is to read about your antics in a book. Uh, thanks very much indeed. That's I'm sure pleasure. that uh, I'm sure that that's whetted everyone's appetites for autumn birding, which <laughs> that's a, pleasure, a bit yeah. a bit uh, a bit previous in the in the March podcast. But never mind. Thanks very much, and pass me a tea cake. <laughs> right, that's it for this episode. Thanks very much to everyone for listening, and also. Thanks for your patience in waiting for this podcast to come out. It's been entirely my fault. It's been uh, life, but mainly burning, getting in the way. Hopefully it won't be too long a wait until the next one. Uh, What's coming up in the next one? (laughs) I have no idea. There'll be something to do with uh, the points changes that we've discussed earlier on. But what else? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. I'd like to thank everyone who keeps Patriot Challenge going. So James and co, all the people who do all that hard work. Uh, but also particularly the sponsors, so Bressa and Forest Optics, of course, NHBS, The Sound Approach, British Birds, Bardsley Bird Observatory, and of course, Bird Guides, who have always been very helpful from the offset. So thanks very much to them. Until the next time, good birding. <laughs>